Well, uh, as we got home um, from the service on Christmas Eve, and uh, while we were spending some time with friends, uh, I, for some reason, decided to look at my email. I, I just, uh, for some reason, thought I should go up and look at that, and uh, went up to the study, and, and I'm glad I did. A couple hours before the service here, uh, one of my students from Azusa Pacific University, a um, student named Johnny, had sent me an, a, a plea. And this is what he wrote. Hi, Doc Ock. I hope you're enjoying this time of the season. I wanted to email you and ask for your prayers. My stepfather, whom I love and respect, and my mother have not been getting along for some time now. This Christmas break has been the most stressful time of the year for me, and I thought I would email you and others and ask for prayers of healing and strength to persevere in this time for them. I really wanted to go to a Roman Catholic Mass tonight, but because of these circumstances, I feel that it would be best to stay at home and be here for my eight- and seven-year-old siblings who are not taking this well. Do you have any scriptures that I could read tonight that would help bring the joy of Christ's incarnation to me as if I were to go to church tonight? Something I could read and hold on to. It broke my heart because I could feel Johnny's pain. And, and in my response, I encouraged him to, to read Mary's joy in the Magnificat that uh, Todd had focused on last week. And then to read this opening, this opening of John's gospel, these verses. And to focus on the notion that the light overcomes the darkness. But isn't Johnny's plea the question that, that many of us ask? I mean, how can I keep on going? Where do I find hope in the darkness? And isn't the Apostle John's message that we read tonight, that Todd read, isn't that what we need? We, we didn't find, we don't find hope. Hope found us. In fact, in verse 14 of this passage, John says that hope not only found us, Hope became one of us and dwelt among us. Or as Eugene Peterson puts it in the message, and I love this, he says, the word of God moved into our neighborhood. <laughs> For John's Jewish audience, this would have been startling news. This would have been incredible because nowhere in Jewish tradition, nowhere in Jewish tradition had they ever heard that the word of God would become flesh. God had dwelt in a tabernacle, in a tent, when he revealed his glory that, uh, that, that established his covenant with Israel. And now, John says, and this is actually the wording that, that John uses, John says that Jesus has now tabernacled among us. He has pitched his tent among us. He's taken up residence, but not now in a tabernacle, but in a tent of flesh. The preexistent, divine creator of all the, the glorious Lord of the cosmos and of all history became flesh. Like Olivia Newton John, God said, let's get physical. 
and, and like, a, like a V-shaped point in time and space, the divine became human. The absolute became relative. The eternal became temporal. The immortal became mortal, and the infinite became finite. And, and this, this was more fantastic even than in Moses' day. When, when God pitched his tent among the Hebrews, Moses got the, the best view of God up to that point. He just got a backside view. And now John is telling us that we get to see God face to face. And he also tells us that we get to see God with more grace than the Hebrews ever knew. Even, even after they broke the covenant with God in Exodus 34, what John is alluding to here, he's saying, but we have received even more grace. We've seen it. And while I was preparing the sermon, I, I, uh, I found myself humming an alternative rock tune that, uh, I don't know, maybe some of you remember if you were into that uh, years ago. Uh, but it was uh, Joan Osborne's uh, One of Us. And whether she realized it or not, her song really paraphrased this prologue in John's Gospel. Because she starts the song saying, what if God were one of us, just a slob like one of us? And that is precisely the incredible announcement that John makes in verse 14, when he says the word became flesh. God didn't, did, did become one of us. He became a slob like one of us. But in doing that, John tells us a little bit later at the end of this passage in verse 18 that Jesus also revealed the heart of God. I mean, literally in that text, uh, to use a fancy word, John's really saying Jesus exegeted God. In other words, we, whether she realized it or not, Joan Osborne was for the most part paraphrasing this part of John chapter 1. Literally, we have seen God and he is one of us. If you want to know the heart of the one who created you and everything else in the cosmos, then you need look no farther than Jesus Christ. When the disciple Philip asked Jesus, uh, show us the Father and we'll be satisfied. You know, one of those knucklehead disciples just hasn't quite got it yet. And so finally Jesus just says flat out to Philip, Father, uh, Philip, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. I'm a chip off the old block, to paraphrase him. And, and when someone like Joan Osborne asks, if God had a face, what would it look like? The answer is Jesus Christ. And that's fantastic news. I mean, God hasn't left us in the dark about himself. Jesus clearly shows us who God is. When you know Jesus, you know God. When, when, when you hear how Jesus responded to the blind and the outcast and the lame and, and the adulterer and the grieving and the money gouger, when you know how Jesus responded to them, then you know how God responds to us. When you hear the promises of Jesus, you're hearing the promises of God. 
When you believe in Jesus, you believe in God. When you hate Jesus, you are hating God. When you worship Jesus, you are worshiping God. So here's the paradox. Here's the incredible thing. If you want to know God, then you have to get to know him on his terms. I mean, in other words, you have to get to know him as one who entered into the muck and the mud of our human existence. Because that's the way that you get to know this God. But if truth be told, most, most actually would find this unacceptable because they want a, a superhero or because they can't tolerate the idea that God would stoop so low to become, you know, a slob like us. And, and even his own didn't receive him, John said. Even we have a hard time with it. I mean, we sing away in the manger, you know, during Christmas time. And fortunately, I don't think we, we did that. It's a nice little ditty until you get to the line, no crying he makes. Wrong. Totally wrong. Uh, you can be sure that this baby wailed when his diapers needed to be changed or when he was hungry. <laughs> I, instead, uh, you know, a lot of Chris, uh, Christian churches, they put together a live nativity, you know, and they, they find some docile, placid baby that's donated by a couple to lie there quietly uh, while Joseph and Mary, you know, are sitting there with their hands folded and blessing this child and praying hands. What probably happened is that the baby is wailing. Mary is wiped out over in a corner because she just gave birth after a long ride into town. And Joseph, where is he? Oh, he's trying to find a plywood stork to put in the front lawn that says it's a boy, right? <laughs> I mean, we just, we just messed that all up because we don't want God on God's terms. We want to spiritualize it. He became flesh. Jesus was God who became fully human. He had a specific height and weight. He had an eye and hair color. He had a shoe size. His residence was Palestine. His occupation was carpenter and itinerant preacher. And his religion was Jewish. He wasn't a Christian. I know that comes as a shock to some people. Um, he had a birthday party probably once a year. He perhaps snored when he slept and he played with the little kids in the neighborhood. The creator of the universe became enfleshed. He got his hands dirty. He wrestled with us in our own mud and he even experienced death on a cross for a crime he did not commit. And all that can't comes to me, this stuff comes to me every year, especially on December 28th. So yesterday I woke up as I do every year on December 28th. And the first thing I remember are the little toddlers of Bethlehem whose life was taken because our Lord came in the flesh. And we have a prayer in the Book of Common Prayer for them for this feast of holy innocence, as we call it. And it reminds me, it reminds me that 
Christmas is also a time of tragedy. It's a time when, 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 when God enters into a world that is dark. And it reminds me also that this God who became flesh knows that unlike King Herod, who was responsible for the death of those children, this king decides to live with his people and to live like his people so that every time a friend or loved one is struck down, every time a child is abused or dies, every time a tragic accident occurs, every time a physical infirmity interrupts the normal course of our lives, there is sorrow in the heart of God. Because this God in the flesh cares. God hurts when we hurt. God knows what it feels like. And that's what Christmas is all about. The Son of God entered into the muck of our world precisely because God is not a God who watches from a distance. Bette Midler and all those guys got that wrong a few years ago during the first Gulf War when they sang that song. Our God doesn't watch from a distance. The Father knows what the parents of those innocent Bethlehem children felt like because he lost his only son to the unjust cruelty that our human hatred dished out. Endorsed by Pilate, Herod's counterpart. And because he pitched his tent among us, he knows what my student Johnny was feeling on Christmas Eve. So the Apostle John says in his first letter that he didn't just appear to be human. At the first letter that John wrote, he said, what we have touched with our hands, what we've seen with our eyes, what we've heard with our ears, this we declare to you, that Jesus came in the flesh. But that's scandalous to some folks. I mean, once... Um, I was being taxied to O'Hare Airport when we lived in the Chicago area by a Muslim imam, and we had been talking about our vocations, relative vocations as teachers. And when he dropped me off at the airport and pulled out my suitcases from the trunk of the, of the car, he asked this question, let me ask you, if Jesus was God, then, and he was in the womb of Mary, then who was running the world? And if I'd have been thinking about my theology more than I was thinking about my upcoming flight, I would have answered, well, he was just expanding his territory. <laughs> He's an amazing God, an amazing God. But Christians, Christmas would not be Christmas if it weren't that kind of scandalous announcement that God came in one person at one time in one place in history. What you and I are doing here this evening Worshiping the one who came to his own in human flesh is one of the most scandalous things that anyone can do in our world today. In a world of pluralistic religions, when nobody wants you to peg God and say, well, it's that one. In fact, um, only if the symbols were welcomed in the malls and the schools and, and the parks would I be concerned. Because the scandal of Christmas is that God chose to, us, chose to come to us in one and only one person 2,000 years ago, Jesus of Nazareth. And here's the question now. Is the one who moved into the neighborhood two millennia ago still around today? Is God still with us? 
Well, John says it's the true light that's coming to the world. Did you catch that? He said it enlightens every person, every human being, all times, everywhere. So John would say, sure, he's around now. This is the light that comes into the darkness, and the darkness cannot overpower it. It can't violently master over it because that's the function of light. When you're in a, a pitch black room and you turn on a light, the darkness is gone. That's what the light does. And John says this light that overcomes this darkness overcomes the darkness for everyone. Everyone seems to be aware of it. But again, is the light shining in, in our neighborhoods? After all, it's been 2,000 years since that candle was lit and that baby king was born. I don't, I don't have easy answers to that. I don't know how the light of Christ enlightens every human being. But I do know two things. First, we can only see light when it is reflected. You can't see light in a vacuum. That's physics. But the second thing I know, the gospel lesson tonight tells us that John the baptizer was not the light, but came as a witness to the light so that all might believe through him. And that is gospel truth. In other words, I don't really know how the light of Christ enlightens everyone, except that John the baptizer is a paradigm. And then the Christ light shines in the world today as it reflects off of us, just as it reflected off of John the baptizer. Only as we point to the source. The point is this, we're to reflect Christ's life. We're not to dazzle people with our own brilliance. We're to reflect Christ's life. Ever since I heard that uh, the Protestant theologian Karl Barth uh, reminded himself of this by keeping uh, Grunewald's painting, The Crucifixion, which you will see in just a minute as soon as Andrew puts it up there. <laughs> there it is. Distorted slightly, but that's it. Um, Ever since I read that he put that above his study, uh, I said, I got to have one. So, uh, I don't know, it was a long time ago, three decades ago, whatever, I got a print of that and it, it's above my study. And, and one of the reasons that Bart wanted it up there was that he once said, one might recall John the Baptist in Grunewald's crucifixion, especially his prodigious index finger. Could anyone point away from himself more impressively and completely? Yeah? <laughs> that's amazing. I mean, that's what we're supposed to be doing, holding the word in one hand and pointing to Christ in the other. And... And that's the answer to the question, is God still with us? Does the light still shine or has the darkness taken over? And here's how Bart answered that question. That great theologian, Karl Barth, said that it is God who asks us, are you who are Christians, Christ persons, what you say you are? Does a breath of comfort, healing, and wellness go out into the sick world from you who are Christians? Have you done your part to let the light that you have penetrate into your families, into your social circumstances, into the relations of different people and nations to one another? So the tables are turned, said Bart, and we are asked whether the light of Christmas really is light, asking us what we have made of the light that has long ago been given at Christmas. It's certainly the Savior is our light, he said. But is it not odd that we allow so little of the light of the Savior to enter into our work, into our relations with other persons, 
and to the events of our time, into conversations in our families, into our dealings with the civil authorities and the organizations to which we belong. We live in an era of latchkey kids, perhaps like Johnny's seven and eight-year-old siblings. We spend, more time, we spend more time with the media and virtual reality than they do with their parents, whose generation sees half its parents' marriages breaking up, where one of every four kids under 21 are being raised by a single parent. And so the question that many of them are asking, and they're asking it of us, is, will you be there for me? They're not asking, what's the meaning of life? They're asking, will you be there for me? Will you, parents and friends and partners and society and leaders and nation and church and God, will you be there for me? It's a generation of folks who are skeptical about all institutions, including the church. People are looking for visible, tangible signs of God's grace and truth in a world that signifies little else but terrorism and national debt and energy shortages and failed governments and poverty and climate change. In the midst of darkness, John came to bear witness to the light so that all might through him be saved. But the world's response is, so that all through him might believe, but the world's response is, show me. Show me, because unless I see in the flesh what you're talking about, I will not believe. And so we must move into the neighborhoods and reflect his light as Paul commanded the Colossians in the text that was read tonight, clothed with tender-hearted mercy and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience, making allowance for others' faults and forgiving the person who offends us. And remembering says Paul that what is most important is to live lives of love and peace from the one who established peace and justice on earth and is doing it now. Was there ever a more significant time in, to find ourselves in God's story, in the story of Christmas? We, the church, have been sent by the Father, just as the Father has sent the Son, we've been sent We've been sent just as the word became flesh. We have indeed seen and been touched by the word made flesh. We will taste the word made flesh tonight. We have been breathed upon and empowered by the Holy Spirit. But the question remains and something we might want to think about for a few minutes. Are we there for others to see and a touch. Where this coming week will the light that entered into our world 2,000 years ago shine in our work and in our homes and in our families and in our neighborhoods to answer the plea of someone like my student, Johnny.